Shelly Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com and listeners like you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck O'Shelly. August 12, 2021, allegedly according to that thing we call a calendar. And this is indeed the show you were looking for. How do I know that? Because you're hearing my voice. Anyway, uh, looks like I got to turn my volume down. You know... Every time Windows does an update, screws up all my settings, so apologies in advance if anything is strange or unstable during the broadcast, but I will repair it as I speak. Anyway, <laughs> tonight on this Thor's Day Ocelli Effect, I'm very, very happy to have Larry Hancock back again. Now, we did complete the complete works of Larry Hancock basically as they stand today. Uh, addendum there. There may be additional works in the future. Uh, Larry kind of hinted that there might not be a full book, but other stuff that will be added to the collected works. So guess we'll have to stay tuned. And you can do that by going to Larry-Hancock.com. That is his website. That is where his blog is. You can see his books, uh, find a way to purchase them, all that good stuff. And all those links will be in the show notes of the podcast so, if you're not listening live like most of my listeners, yeah, check the show notes. You'll be able to ch- catch up with Larry Hancock online. So, thing is, this is a supplemental uh, episode connected to the collected, w- the collection of Larry Hancock. You know, the Larry Hancock collection, so to speak. <laughs> um, but a very necessary one. Why? I think there is a a profound lack of understanding when it comes to the methodologies and the devices of warfare that are often discussed and yet very little understood. Um, And and I've tried discussing this related to the the war on terror. And today as we sit here, there's action in Afghanistan and some people already panicking that they're sending troops back into Afghanistan for these extractions, evacuations, whatever it is you want to call them. Uh, Are they going to get out all of the collaborators or are we going to be confronted with a lot of people that, oh, I don't know, helped the U.S. 20-year-long occupation of Afghanistan? Are some people going to get stuck? If history tells us anything, uh, indeed, there will be individuals left behind. Um, But is that what's going on? How did we get here? Does asymmetric warfare as a tactical mechanism have a lot to do with what you see in Afghanistan today, what history tells us about where empires go to die, uh, what can it tell us about Vietnam, and oh, by the way, is it the creme de la creme of those who don't have an organized military, is it the bottom-rung tactic of the legitimate you know, um, powers that be there, you know, uh, authorized militaries. Is it unauthorized? Is it authorized? Is it merely a tactical choice? Is it a methodology which has a political character? There's a lot to this. And in order to discuss this in full, we have Larry with us. So, Larry, first of all, uh, I, I know that that was sort of a, an open-ended introduction to the topic, but uh, we'll get there in a second. First, how you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Chuck. It's uh, it's summer here, you know. Uh, it's hot, but we're going to cool off a little bit, and I'm uh, 
you know, doing well for summer. So I'm, I'm good. And I just one comment on what you said earlier. Um, I guess I can promise that at this point in time, David Boylan and I are into 30 pages of another JFK accessory research paper. So as much as I thought I might avoid it, there will be something forthcoming still related to JFK. Every time I'm out, I think I'm out, they pull me back in. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Larry, look, I, I think you're going to continue to do this until you're you're absolutely incapable, whether you're anxiously looking to do it or not. I, I think you just, it's just you, man. It's part of who you are. I mean, you may indeed go in other directions and do other things. And I, I welcome you on here to even talk about the weather, sir, because I love just talking to you. But I, I have this suspicion that um, you you may co-author or author a few more things before your time is done. So we'll just have to stay tuned, and I'll keep people aware, and hopefully you'll come on here and talk about whatever it is that does come out, whether it's a web series or an online book or yet again another something people can put on their bookshelves. Either way, uh, it'll be worth the price of admission, and it'll be well worth the read. So... Uh, look forward to whatever may or may not come. How about that? <laughs> Sounds good to me. Okay. See, see, you know, notice that you know, wonderful sort of enthusiasm might be a little watered down with Larry, but it's okay. Once you get into a topic, though, you don't let go. You you continue to go on, and even when sometimes you know you're drilling a dry hole, as you've described on this show, uh, you've had to abandon full manuscripts <laughs> that you had. You thought you had a, a great piece, and then you discover maybe this isn't so valuable because of X, Y, Z reason. Uh, so, you know, look, we, we, we all do work, and if it's honest work, quite honestly, we're, we're always going to find that not everything is a gold mine. So, anyway, but, but the things that you actually decide to put out, they are gold mines indeed. All right, anyway, so, uh, you know, I look forward to that, but this topic is is necessary because it permeates nearly every single piece of work that we discussed on this show and in this series. Um, one way or another, you can find asymmetrical tactics, uh, utilization of them. <laughs> one way or another, I guess, in every single one of your pieces. I mean, politics, yes, and some sort of asymmetrical violence that is for political means and I don't know that I disagree with that paraphrase from uh, Chairman Mao, you know. War is uh, is politics without without blood, or no, wait. War is politics with blood. Politics is war without blood. Um, not sure if it's so black and white, because I think the chairman misses that sometimes politics come with blood and sometimes war comes without it. But it's a fair observation and something to ponder. Uh, <laughs> anyway... This is an interesting interesting thing because, am I right or wrong, that this is a, a constant and yet never the headline, it seems like, when it comes to the examination, whether it's historical or as events unfold. Like I said, Afghanistan today and what people are debating uh, really misses the point of, of, of where the, this whole thing has gone in 20 years. And again, the place where empires go to die because it's not just Russia or, excuse me, the USSR and the United States that have uh, gone there and, and seemingly failed 
to to achieve a lot, <laughs> okay? But I mean, it, it, history is littered with individuals who tried to raid this particular area and didn't do so well. Um, and I think it's because they they have a uh, a a clear experiential uh, generational. <laughs> understanding of exactly what we're talking about tonight, which is asymmetrical warfare. Am I wrong? Yeah, I, I think and I think you capture that that quote does capture it well. I think we one of the reasons we miss it is that we tend to we tend to be bipolar. Mm. We, we tend to to look at conflict when it becomes conventional. Okay. Yeah, there's war going on, you know, large numbers of people are shooting each other. Or on the on the other side, we kind of oh, there's a revolution happening, you know, that's political, and if it finally got our attention. But asymmetric warfare or a, asymmetric action occupies a a niche right in the middle of the spectrum of conflict between conventional warfare and political warfare. So it is a constant. Quite frankly, it is going on all the time somewhere, but I think because it is a constant, you know, it doesn't have that sensational aspect that gets the headlines most of the time. Mm. But if, and and that makes sense, but because we ignore it that way, we also don't realize that you're kind of always on the cusp. Well, where, do you, do you think part of the problem? Where is occurring, it can go, it can go either direction really quick. Well, see, that's the thing. I think part of the problem is, you know, you said it, it it occupies a niche, but it is not in an isolated or compartmentalized niche because the fact is that asymmetrical warfare could indeed be political communication. Um, and it can also be part of the standard warfare uh, in a way. It, it, it's not disconnected. It's not its own thing, <laughs> it seems like. Um it crosses over it, into it, both. Yeah, it's in the spectrum. I think that's the better way to think of it. If okay. you think laterally, you're looking at a, a spectrum of conflict. It's just right there in the middle, and it's always there. And, and and that kind of makes it easy to ignore until it becomes a flashpoint, you know. But you're absolutely. It's not a niche, and I. You're exactly right, Chuck. I think. If you read the definitions online or the technical definitions, it kind of it minimizes them because it refers to it as a tactic. And it's not really a tactic. It is a state of conflict. Mm. Now, how would one differentiate between the two? Because a state of conflict gives rise to necessary tactics. So how do you differentiate between a state of conflict and well, simply a tactical mechanism. Because, again, you don't require the uniforms. You don't require state sponsorship, although you could have it. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a lot of the things that would normally be a predicate to describe something in this way um, may or may not apply as conditions vary. So it, it's very difficult. How, how do you, but how do you discern between a state of warfare and a tactical mechanism? Well, I think historically, and this is kind of what's misled us, mm -hmm. the definitions go, oh, well, it's it's asymmetrical if there's a radical difference in the weapons being used. Uh, mm -hmm. One okay. side of the conflict has artillery and the other side has single-shot rifles, you know, or one side is using uh, massive military formations 
and the other side is in guerrilla action. And that's the way the definitions read. But mm -hmm. I would look at it a bit differently. And the way I would characterize it generally is it can, it can either be defensive or it can be offensive. Historically, right. it's, it's defensive. It's a local population or a group that considers itself a group culturally, territorially, religious in conflict with an external opponent, uh, an empire, an empire builder, a foreign... It, that's one aspect of it is where your a territorial or culturally related, related population is pushing back mm -hmm. against what they see as a foreign influence, a foreign occupier. On the other hand, when we look at contemporary events, we find out actually you can turn it around the other direction and you can make it aggressive and use some totally different types of tools, uh, political warfare tools like cyber warfare or uh, low conflict harassment, uh, stuff that, that sort of looks conventional in a way and you might see on a large scale and large scale conventional conflict, but if you just lose a, use a little bit of it, for the right purposes, you're actually going asymmetric because it's like you're you're using just a small amount of conventional tactics or tools in a highly focused manner, and you're keeping it under the level of where it goes into real conflict, which is a lot of what we're seeing right now in cyber warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that may have been a long-winded explanation, but that's. There's a whole range of tactics that can be employed whether you're using it defensively or offensively. And that's why I consider it as, as so critical as a state because you've got to look at what's going on and going, oh, how is this really playing out? Because there are so many – there are a number of tactics. It's not just guerrilla warfare. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it's been thought of in the past. You know, that that is Afghanistan, let's right. say. Right. But that is not what we're seeing in the South China Sea. It's not what we're seeing in the in the Gulf. Um, so you've got to have a broader picture. Well, and indeed, th th this uh, it involves an array of possibilities when someone is seeking a result. Because you could utilize this, um, okay, philosophically. It could be utilized by individuals who have one of those territorial concerns, uh, cultural concerns, uh, religious concerns, sure. And perhaps they are left with less than conventional options because they're underfunded. Um, now, this doesn't mean that they're not useful to those who do have conventional means and conventional warfare at their fingertips because... Uh, for instance, in a situation, given any of these conflicts in the past, you know, couple of decades, uh, where a, uh, you know, U.S. forces have gone into Afghanistan, Iraq, those, those are the headlines, but we're elsewhere. Um, even allowing some of these uh, asymmetrical fighters to do things causes a reaction from the larger group. Uh, for instance... What has gone on in Afghanistan, a lot of the action has been about security forces, right? Because they needed them. <laughs> um, 
so you cause resources to be redirected into we have to not only operate the Air Force Base, but now we have to protect it because what? The the improvised explosive device, right? The IED. This is a problem. I mean, and these are, you know, crudely made pipe bombs that can wreak havoc and things like this uh, coming at you from directions where intelligence, standard intelligence, doesn't necessarily uh, have a grip on it. So a different type of security force needs to be deployed. That's a lot of resources that have to be dedicated in countering insurgency or the asymmetrical warfare. Um, and, and one could say that a foreign adversary who has an interest in the area might seek to fund them as, you know, in, I, I bet you know where I'm going, don't you? <laughs> um, and, and this has gone back and forth in a place like Afghanistan. I point out all the time the Mujahideen and, you know, funding came in from various sources in order to help them out because why? It was going to cause the USSR to bleed off its resources in its attempt to, uh, well, what, what should we say there, to uh, subdue Afghanistan, which they, they failed to do. Um, and, and I think doing no small part to the fact that there were well-funded and poorly funded insurgencies coming at the, well, the, the Soviet army, <laughs> that uh, they, they could not possibly uh, continue to uh, bleed their resources into countering. Um, and it, it's not an immediate result that was achieved, but it was effective. So one could say that there, there is a difference between understanding it as a condition and as a useful mechanism to, say, an outsider who chooses to fund it or support it. And also its organic uh, conditions, right? Yeah, I, I think you've captured something that, that really is important. It sort of complicates things. But yeah. again, it's something that's totally missing from the definitions that you normally find or that you find on there online. And it didn't used to be. If you, if you just look at the history, I mean, quite frankly, if you're looking at a, you know, a... British army of occupation somewhere versus local tribesmen, it's still more a matter of more people with rifles, maybe better rifles, mm -hmm. than, you know, people with no rifles. Uh, let's look at South Africa. Okay. Th that was, okay, th that's asymmetric, but now what we're talking about is to counter the asymmetry we deploy extremely expensive weapons, mm -hmm. uh, smart weapons, you know, bombs, missiles, aircraft, a support infrastructure that require tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to support bombing raids against villages or uh, cave complexes where those folks still have Maybe they, they still have rifles, automatic rifles, they have rocket launchers, but still the economic asymmetry is tremendous. So the bleed factor is huge, like you're, you're talking about, and the mm -hmm. bleed factor is, is exponentially more differential right now than it used to be. And I, do, I don't see that in any of the definitions of asymmetric warfare, and that's that's one of the reasons why I think the cycles 
are probably increasing because you could stay for years and years and years with occupation troops, kind of like the Romans did. Okay, mm-hmm. fine. Now you're going to spend a lot more of your resources much more quickly because of high tech and, and because of your weapons that you develop for conventional technology with adversaries that you're now using with guerrilla fighters. I mean, we first saw that in Vietnam and how expensive that was. It's far more expensive now. So the economic asymmetry is something that everybody should know, but I don't see it much discussed. See, but it's but it's a key, and and it's a key to why this is effective. I mean, common sense tells you that if you need a million dollar piece of equipment to detect a hundred dollar pipe bomb, okay, eventually <laughs> that you know exponentially continuing causes you an issue because you're spending millions to stop my hundred dollar bombs. You know, if you and I were opponents, <laughs> okay. And, uh, yeah, the math doesn't hold after a while. Um, Now, does that mean that, you know, trillions of dollars are not spent to fight thousands of dollars worth of enemy? No, it happens. And it did happen in Afghanistan, the way I see it. Because uh, even though it didn't cost a lot of blood, relatively speaking, uh, a lot of money got dumped into that. And, and again, I, I am unsatisfied with the idea that any achievable objective was ever met um, outside of the, you know, the, the, the political. And, well, we're, we've now been there and we're securing and here's the government that's going to collapse like, I don't know, in, in next 10 minutes maybe, <laughs> you know, depending. Um, what was actually achieved? And if someone does a, a, a uh, you know, a, a forensic examination of the finances here, I, I think it costs them a lot less to uh, to hold than it did for the United States to occupy. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know anybody who can argue with that, <laughs> but and, and it must be a significant consideration at some point. I mean, it's not endless; it, it, it's not infinite. The the resources that can be devoted to something like this. So on a smaller scale. When you have a nation that doesn't have the economic power and the military-industrial complex that the United States does, which, by the way, nobody does on the planet, um, you you can achieve a victory against a much better-funded, supplied, and technologically-advanced enemy with this condition if you can make it uh, happen. I mean, I'm just thinking about this tactically, you understand. Uh, it's not about the politics or the morality of it. I'm just talking about, in, in, in a nuts and bolts sort of way, I, I think it's been proven that no matter the size of the bully or the size of the troops, <laughs> uh, they can be repelled at relatively low cost when it comes to the balance sheet. And I, and I think that's extremely important. And as you said, almost never really discussed, unless people want to use it for the political football, you know. The Democrats wanted to waste money on this. No, the Republicans wanted to waste money on this. Uh, but, you know, I note that they, they never seem to really oppose each other when it comes to dumping more money into these sorts of things, usually. Um, but but anyway, it, it, it is a factor that is not really focused on, though, right? 
And and it shows you, how, I think it illustrates two things. It illustrates how easy it is to fool yourself when you are applying that massive force. Mm-hmm. Because clearly, clearly the situation on the ground in Afghanistan illustrates that it was always an artificial situation. That, that we had to be applying enough air power and enough boots on the ground to sustain... A, situ- a political situation that was unreal. It, it just would not collapse this readily if it if it, the political situation was not unreal. And I, I've read some really good analyses recently as what's occurred over the last two or three years that has destabilized what Afghan government there was and and basically the mistakes they made out in the regions and but it it, it illustrates how enough force and enough money can cover up something that's really you, you should see. And and I think to some extent, I think our our analysts saw it and I think you get into a situation of where you know, I know how really bad this is going to be if I pull back and so I can't because I'll, it'll be too embarrassing. And I literally don't have the political nerve or will to go through what's going to happen. I, I, I refuse to explain to people why we didn't see this in the first place. And that keeps you stuck there forever and ever, as it did in Vietnam. You know, mm. it, it's not that this thing doesn't repeat itself. It's not, it's just that we never learn from it. But I, I, I think the other thing it points out, something that we, we should know, and, and Chuck, we talked about this briefly, is we, we have this tendency in military and political affairs to, it's not just in medicine, to ignore science, mm-hmm. to, to an, ignore what we've learned about the human condition, uh, homo sapiens as a species. We spent five or six decades in the last century understanding who we really were, understanding the effect of territory, understanding the territorial imperative, I could pull half a dozen books off the shelf that make the very solid scientific case of how strong this territorial imperative is and how foreigners don't do well against the territorial imperative in the long run. Yeah, yeah, you can impose your will for a certain amount of time, but it, unless you want to commit genocide like the Mongols did... Um, Empires don't last, and the empire cycle is really shortening in contemporary times. But we just have this will to ignore things, it seems like. No, and and fair enough. Look, this is the trajectory throughout history that empires do not last. Uh, At some point, they become overextended and overfed, and then they collapse upon themselves. Uh, And and that's pretty much just what happens. which is why I've always argued with people about the discussions over the Roman Empire, because there is no one particular pivot point that the Roman Empire collapses. And a lot of people say, no, it's this, it's that. I mean, you, you can go to when they divided it into two empires, <laughs> uh, which, you know, tells you something about the size of the thing. Um, and when you look at the nature of the Eastern and Western Empire, 
uh, always ignored by these Roman historians, is that uh, there there was a good practical reason why that happened, and it it absolutely spelled the end in my mind. But you know, it wasn't something that happened uh, you know in quick time, and the existence of the U.S. Empire, and I do call it that. Uh, has been rather short so far, and yet we seem to be way further down the timeline uh, when it comes to, yeah, it doesn't matter that you have the largest military on the planet and that you have the biggest territory or that you have the most money. Um, you, there, there are just limitations. And there are limitations partially because of this uh, territoriality that, you know, what, look, we could go into all sorts of directions about that. Uh, which is why I object to it so harshly when I see it played as a political game, uh, because it is uh, entirely toxic and quite sadly effective for uh, motivating individuals to become the insurgent, to become the uh, the force onto themselves, and it just makes things bloody all the time. I, I, I don't think it serves a greater purpose. I'd love to see us all evolve, but <clears throat> I guess, you know, not in my lifetime. Uh, and uh, so so here we are. Let's get back to the basics, though, because we, we kind of went into the weeds with Afghanistan and kind of had to because Afghanistan is in the weeds. It just is. <laughs> um, but but let's go let's go to the basics here. How? how how could you explain this to somebody who hasn't, you know, decided to hurt their head with military history, with political science? I mean, how how could you give the, the best layman's explanation for this? Uh, not the definition that ignores the economic side of things, but just really, where, where do you start to understand this, Larry? Well, I, th- I think you have to start, you have to go back to not the military side, not the tactical side. You have to go back to the human condition. Okay. And you have to go you, you have to go back to the point that there is no generic human culture. Mm-hmm. You know, humans, human societies, humans groupings are not global in nature. They're not national in nature they're not continental <laughs> research has, has essentially said that basic human groupings started about 50 people which is the extended family and then that gets overlaid into you know folks that speak the same language and and have generations and generations of economic interest with each other trade and agriculture and that you, you have to understand what makes the territorial imperative if you can't step back and say all right there is division so we would love it if there was not division mm-hmm. but division is the nature of the beast so division and we have to look at those divisions yeah. and accept them as real we can't wish them away so division in its most basic form begins with the not necessarily ethnic but the generational tribal kind of arrangement where there is a a a genetic connection a cultural connection that comes from common interaction 
on a very small level. The, the tribal, really, is what we're talking about here because this is how tribes are formed, right? I mean, you know, the people marry within their tribes. They, they, they are smaller groups, not, you know, not the most uh, genetically diverse groups, and they become protectorates onto themselves. And a territory is, is almost coincidental, but because it's occupied by the tribal, I mean, the, the basically... This is where we begin, without nation-states, without political organization, without all of this kind of stuff. This is where we begin. Is that fair? I, that's that's absolutely fair. And that, that I'm not just making up. That's, that's scientific research demonstrates that. that. That's not an artifice. It's That's the reality. That's where it starts. And then I, I think what you have, that, to quite frankly that kind of basic territorial unit is what starts to form cultures and societies and that that's kind of your basic working unit uh, that's a, that's very difficult to overcome these these are people and it, it's been shown these are people that trust each other mm-hmm. you know that are related that are economically bound and can, can you elevate that up to, you know, a larger level? Sure, you can. There are a lot of things that the overlay to that, the overlay to the, that tribal structure, is the cultural structure, which you would consider kind of a virtual relationship. It's kind of like these folks are virtually related because of, of trade, economics, religion, and that's where you up up the scale from fifty people. Quite frankly, you can up it to. 50,000 or 5 million if, if you want to it depends on which cultural aspect you want to use if you want to use just economics or if you bring in a religion and ideology you can bind those folks at a huge level hmm. uh, and that's one of the things again that we we don't seem to understand is it starts at the level of tribe but then it elevates up to a much larger level and you if you approach them, essentially they will feel that you're 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 an occupier, you're an invader, intruder at, at several different levels. It just doesn't have to be territory. It can be cultural. It can be religious, which is the other factor that we see in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It isn't just tribal. It is admittedly religious. Well, the Taliban is not merely a political organization. Uh, you know, there there is a religious dogma to it uh, that, you know, is brought up incidentally by uh, people that, you know, discuss this as a news item. But <clears throat> to understand that uh, there, there there is a basis for that that goes far beyond the naming of it and the creation of it as it stands today... Uh, it, it is to uh, sorely misunderstand what it is you're being confronted with. And it's not as though that's the only region on the planet where this is true. As we said, beginning with the tribal, um, these things have evolved into, yes, larger tribes and competition among slightly differing tribes of all sorts, whether they be religious or they be uh, based on a... Uh, less than uh, oh theocratic uh, 
ethos, it's irrelevant. There is a commonality that is formed among a group, which, as you said, can get fairly large. But, uh, look, studying anthropology, studying sociology, I mean, it's not hard to uh, understand how this works and how it is you can uh, amplify this artificially and create, well, create a commonality among larger masses. And, well, then we get into alliances and things like this where we can tolerate each other and we can work together up to a certain extent, but we're not going to necessarily be the same. And that's the next step, isn't it? It, it is, because what that really defines is we, we were talking about, so it's not just physical territoriality. It's cultural te- territoriality, social. So you've got us and you've got them. Mm-hmm. And where we see asymmetric warfare, where we've seen it has generally been in defense of us. Right. In, in Afghanistan, you got three different things going for you. You've got local tribal groups that have been in existence for generation after generation. They're related or they're not related. You've got the economics of the poppies, which have been there for ages mm-hmm. and are still there. That's one of the major external economic factors going on. And then you've got religion. If you go back in time and you look at Southeast Asia, look at Laos or Vietnam, and you had the same kind of us versus them. In South Vietnam, you had, they considered it a foreign intrusion just to have Catholics in charge of the country. Right. Um, because most of the country was not Catholic. Uh, Southeast Asia had its own drug thing going. Hmong and Laos had made a living off drugs for generations. Uh, and then you had the ideological aspect. So these these three layers always mix and always help define who is us versus who is them and are always the kind of if if you can if you can muster us versus them you and into an effective asymmetrical warfare complex and it doesn't have to be big then you it's going to happen and mm-hmm. And that is what really creates this asymmetry that we're talking about. It's not just in weapons. It's the asymmetry asymmetry in in this regard is basically us versus them. Okay, they're here. They showed up. They have more weapons. They have bigger weapons. But you know what? We're here. We've been here. We're going to stay here, and we're going to outlast them. Well, there's and one you know other yeah. that generally happens, and there's one other consideration here where there is a historical situation that continues on in generational form. For instance, in Vietnam, you know, uh, to, to a Westerner, Vietnamese and Chinese, they should be what pretty similar. Uh, they share certain cultural aspects. They genetically, it is likely, share, you know, a a close kinship. Um, However, there is a history there. Uh, Japanese and Chinese uh, people with their prejudices and things like that, which have been leveraged in, well, political, for political means, for, for methods of warfare and so on and so forth. There is a history there as well, uh, where, look, we remember that. When the Japanese came to China, they, well, they slaughtered a whole lot of Chinese people, didn't they? Um, 
and this becomes kind of a genetic memory where you can seize upon that as well to motivate the asymmetrical psychology right so honestly if uh there there were another in you know i mean and again this is a complex issue it's not very simply laid out uh north korea south korea we we have different instances where this is played out in different ways right in asia alone go ahead I would just say, I think you're getting close to the point. I think what we need is a new word for it. Rather Ah. than asymmetric warfare, I would call it asymmetric conflict. Okay. So that we can capture all the aspects of the points of which there is a conflict. It's not just military. I mean, the real point is, if it gets bad enough, it gets military. Well, that's the bottom line. Look, rhetoric and resentment and sentiment and propaganda can lead to violence. And I guess once we get to violence, that's warfare. I, I, I guess is that is that fair? That's what I'd call it. Yeah. So I okay. I just think we need to look at it from a broader perspective because at any place in time, I guess that was the point. At any place in time, it's possible you're going to find some indications of asymmetric conflict. It's hmm. just, you know, what does it look like, and when's, when is it just political, or when is it tending towards violence? And I, I have to say, this this doesn't just extend towards territory. It certainly it ex- extends in cultural conflicts as well. Well, right, and like I said, sometimes it's based on a history that is known, or maybe not as well known, but there are historical reasons for this. Where, look, you know, your your grandfather's generation remembers these people. <laughs> you know, uh, just just saying, this is one of these things that gets passed on, right? Our ancestors yeah, and, and were... We, yeah. We've limited, I mean, we're used to talking about where the U.S. has been. In Afghanistan now and in Vietnam and Laos. But everything that we're saying right now applies to um, the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. uh, that did not, that only was maintained by force. Right. And it's kind of like in Belarus now, yeah, you can maintain it by force. But there are cultural and religious and territorial differences there that it, if you have, if you ignore them, uh, you're at risk. And that's what, that's why, again, why the Soviet Union collapsed so quickly. I, I think we're all surprised about Afghanistan, but the point is, as in Eastern Europe, as in Vietnam, if you apply sufficient force to overwhelm these basic, this basic discord, if you will, of mm-hmm. foreigner versus local, when it goes, it goes all at once, and it goes very quickly. So what we're seeing in Afghanistan, quite frankly, is more more the rule mm-hmm. than than something unusual. It just shows that you were you were applying enough force to maintain an unreal condition. But the Soviets learned that the same way across Eastern Europe mm-hmm. in the space of two years. See, th- this is this is the again the philosophical problem I have uh, all all the time trying to explain this. That, quite frankly, look, every government, whether you view it as benevolent or nefarious, 
um, generally there's a huge obstacle course that one has to go through the legal system the uh, social shifts and these things and voting and blah 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 you get to all these things but at the end what is the final level of control it is the ability to wield violence and if there is nothing there to keep the population busy but the threat of violence yeah as soon as the gun is put down the game is over and I mean that that's really what it comes down to and I think that's been shown over and over to be true is that when you don't have the cultural holds when you don't have the philosophical the academic holds when you don't have the control over the population being exerted via all these things well ahead of just look I've got a gun <laughs> um you, you, you really do not have control. You just have the illusion of it. It is very temporary. And that is what is being revealed here in Afghanistan, is at the end of the day, there was no ability to nation-build. That didn't happen. They just simply had, we have a military force. And it was never evolved beyond that due to the resistance of the people concerned. And I think the same thing happened in Vietnam. There was no way that conflict was going to end unless somebody put down the gun. And once they did, water was restored their way. Um, and I think and, that's... And the French saw it before we saw it. Yeah. Empires always see it this way. Again, when empires collapse, they, it's more like an implosion than a collapse. But right. I'll bring out one other example that I, I think people don't think about a lot because it's kind of deep history and and you might if you're a war, World War II buff if you will one of the things that surprises everybody is that Germany actually gained and Hitler gained a fairly large following in portions of the Soviet Union for example in West Ukraine uh, there there actually were large forces that joined the German army, but they were joining the German army because they looked, they at first thought the Germans were going to release them from foreign occupation. Now, just so happens that the Red Army rolled back over them, mm -hmm. but it, that, that was just an indicator that this condition can only be covered up. You know, it, it's there, and something will release it, and something will... You can't cover it up forever. Now, again, as I said, the Red Army rolled back over and covered up with overwhelming force for more decades. But that was just a, a quick indication of an underlying fact, and an underlying fact that there was territorial and cultural and even religious opposition to the Soviet ideology, which, right. which quite frankly... We saw, if you want to take it to Afghanistan, that's what happened to the Soviets in Afghanistan. Um, th this gets painfully repetitive. Hmm. No, it certainly does, and, and that's the interesting thing. And, and one of the other themes that uh, uh, happens to run through your writing, which is, look, these lessons are self-evident continuously regarding different tactics regarding different movements regarding different uh uses of uh 
you know, whole entire industries to try and achieve the same objective. And the funny thing is, uh, the individuals that should be learning the lessons do not in a lot of cases. Um, but the lessons are there to be observed by others. And, uh, you know, look, when we get into the next hour, I want to get more purely into the, uh, you know, the, the, the concept by which the, this, this is uh, always prosecuted. And uh, I, I know one of your uh, mo mo more recent uh, uh, phrases, which I appreciate a great deal, are spheres of influence. And I want to get into that a little bit and how that works uh, when we're talking about asymmetric conflict now. <laughs> okay. Um, because uh, I, I, I think this is useful to understanding what is going on. Uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases, like I said, people try and break this down to, well, here's the enemy and they, you know, they just, they, they hate us and here we are. And, or they hate them and there they are. Um, there, there is never an objective look at the condition of the conflict. Uh, the history of it is selectively um, utilized to justify things, but never, never looked at in an objective way so that one can understand how this, this all ebbs and flows. Ever, it seems like. Um, but then again, you know, I was born in the 1970s, Larry. What can I say? Okay, I, I can only tell you what I've been able to observe while I've been alive. And it, it just seems to me like over and over again, a very predictable outcome is uh, greeted with surprise by individuals who are supposed to be the intelligent ones running the show. And um, it may be a failure to understand the the, the the full spectrum of asymmetric conflict. I, I think this is a key. I, I could be wrong, though. What, what are your thoughts? I think what we get trapped into, it's just... I am trying to lift the, the whole idea of asymmetric conflict up to something that's strategic, whereas we tend to talk about it as tactical, and, and we tend to treat the world as tactical. We, mm. Our decision makers, and not just the U.S., but everybody responds. Uh, occasionally, there are people in power that have long-term strategies, but quite frankly, those are usually in autocratic societies where you've got a leader or a very small leadership uh, in charge who have a personal strategy, and they make it a national strategy. In democratic societies, we don't have strategies like that because, A, the power base changes like every 30 minutes, you know, so... If we're talking about the U.S., one of the reasons we get it, yeah. we do this sort of thing is we're always responsive. Like the president gets a daily brief and it's like, okay, what do we do about what's going on now? Or what, and from a political standpoint, a military standpoint, we really don't have, we're lucky to have a five year mm -hmm. or maybe a two year, maybe a four year plan. Right. Call it a four-year plan. We don't really have strategies. Autocrats like Mr. Putin can have strategies. <laughs> so can the Chinese president. They can have strategies. We don't. Yeah. So as an example of this, it is. Let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute. It. What a, it's hard to understand why you can look at a transcript, 
of meetings that were made in the first year after 9-11. Mm-hmm. When you look at transcript of the National Security Council meetings and you say the, see the president of the time multiply, multiple times saying, we will not assume a security function in Afghanistan. We will not. We will not do law enforcement. We will not do military security. We, we certainly won't provide security for the government. And we will not do regime building. I mean, it's right there in black and white. So said and him, then, though. <laughs> because, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So what happened? You know, uh, if, if you said that, then you would write down a strategy of what you're going to do that's in line with that. But mm-hmm. no, that's not the way we operate. We just kind of stumble forward and respond to the situation that emerges. And within two years, you've got Blackwater, which is an American private security contractor providing security for the administration in Kabul. Now, I got to tell you, I don't claim to be a great prognosticator, but years and years ago, I did write about an observation that says, look, if you've got to use your own troops, or even worse yet, a military contractor to provide security for a foreign government, don't look for the door. Yeah. Do not. Do, just go. Leave now. Don't do this. This is not going to go well. Well, but see, here's the thing, though. There is something about the momentum of the system itself, because you would have thought during a time of regime change here in the U.S., Barack Obama comes in, and you think, well, hope and change. Uh, This administration must want to do things differently. I mean, I kind of expected him to withdraw from Afghanistan, and um, no. Uh, (laughs) I'm not saying I did, Larry. I'm saying that uh, other people were like, oh, no, he's going to go out of there, and he's, yeah, no, I don't think so, but okay, you know, watch and learn. Uh, and, and you can't get more diverse than taking a look at the last three presidents, you know, before our current uh, friend there in the White House. Um, <clears throat> you know, between Trump, Obama, and Bush, nobody could quite withdraw, even if they thought it was tactically sound to do so, even if they thought yeah. it was a waste of money to continue. Nobody could pull off the withdrawal. I mean, what does that tell you if you've got... <laughs> You know, 15 years of people going, look, we tried this, it didn't work, we didn't want to do this and this, now we're doing it, and uh, yeah, maybe maybe it's time to, you know, the, the old expression, cut your losses, uh, but yeah, no. I, I think that you're exactly right there, Chuck. I think, it, I think it takes a level of political courage that we don't often muster. I mean... Possibly because, and here's a real trap, uh, any president that's running for a second term, it, okay, that you, you don't want to cut and run. That mm-hmm. doesn't help you with some segment of the, your potential voters. Uh, it doesn't help you with all of those people that served in Afghanistan, their families, all the people that lost Oh, yeah, and, and don't, and don't forget Obama There's in his second issue. term. Well, hang on. Obama in his second term, though, when there was no chance of re-election, despite the right-wing conspiracy theory that he was not going to leave <laughs> office, um, <clears throat> which, by the way, I was confronted with on a daily basis. This guy's not going to leave office. He's the last president of the United States. He's the Antichrist. 
okay, well, he left, and knowing that, he could have, you know, spent some political capital and said, well, this is all my decision. Don't even blame my fellow Democrats. I'm doing this. And uh, crickets. No. So, you know, what are we talking about here? It's not always a political consideration, but there's the argument against that. Obama was in a lame duck presidency. He could have done it. You're absolutely right, and and I'm not saying I understand this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm saying is there is there's one other factor, and we saw it in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and and I spent so much time looking at the transition period between. 62, 63, and 64 in Vietnam, it, it makes me think of that. And that's as the as the commander-in-chief. So let's just go back to it. Let's get away from the politics and go to a military perspective. Sure. What are your people telling you on the ground? What what story you're getting? How's, how's it going? You know, is this working? Is this not working? I don't want to pull out. A, it, it's embarrassing if I pull out. So tell me it's not working, and I will. Okay, because I need you all to step up on the podium with me and tell and when I tell the country that we're pulling out that you're with me and I'm not just doing this because, you know, it's my idea. Um, right. Kennedy had was having a hard time finding that in Vietnam, finding the military commanders. The response, even in 63, was it's, well... We think it's turned around. We think the coup. Now the generals are in charge. Maybe it'll work. Um, there, he was getting a mixed message. I think Obama was getting the same mixed message. I, we've had this talk, Chuck, times about how many of the professional military people were talking about Afghanistan in terms of another chance to really apply what we've learned about counterinsurgency. Oh. And you and I were talking about we're shaking your heads and saying, what the heck have we learned? I see no sign we've learned anything. <laughs> That's a good uh, question. Yeah. So good. I, for a president to make that decision, he's got to be getting some good, unbiased advice. And I, I haven't seen a commander yet. I'm not even sure I saw the last commander, the last CENTCOM commander that would be willing to admit in public that we were losing and we should get out. No, you know, I, I, I they didn't even really uh, give any sort of a, a, a strong indication of that with Iraq. And that was a disaster, you know, in, in quick time. Uh, it wasn't this protracted, you know, it wasn't as long as what was going on in Afghanistan. It was happening a lot faster in Iraq and uh, really, I, I think even a more intense insurgency was present there. And, you know, that government is not fully collapsed, <laughs> but different circumstances um, in the aftermath, right? Uh, but, but you still didn't see a strong indicator from CENTCOM, look, th- this needs to stop. This is a waste. Uh, which would have been a courageous position to take, again, had there not been momentum in the system that just seemed to be insistent upon this. And this is so, in the face of the, the uh, uh, asymmetric conflict, if you will, in, in defiance of it. 
Uh, not, so I can't, yeah. I can't blame it entirely on the – I can blame it on the politicians. Now, sure. I can certainly blame it on a president who says we're not going to do security and we're not going to do nation building right. and then goes ahead and does it. That but, yeah. I'm willing to blame. Mm-hmm. But for a president who doesn't pull out, uh, I think you have to share some responsibility with the commanders who should have stepped up and told the truth. and. We know from the Vietnam experience that that's really – you almost shouldn't expect that to happen. Again, we've talked about it. I'd like to I'd like to be able to give a realistic briefing to every new commander-in-chief and say, look, here's what you're going to hear from the military. Here's what you're going to hear from the Department of State. You know, get real with them, you know. Uh, we, we, they're not going to tell. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. They're mm-hmm. not going to tell you bad stuff because that doesn't look, make look make them look good. So you got to ask tough questions, and that's uh, Trump certainly didn't ask tough questions. I don't think Obama asked enough tough questions. Right. I have no idea what questions Biden asked of CENTCOM. What I do know was in the months, in the six months before his assassination. JFK was beginning to ask really tough questions of the Joint Chiefs. That, and I wish we could yeah. expect that from all of our commanders and chiefs. But that's because he had he had learned the hard way. And right. we can't I don't necessarily want to go through another missile crisis just to train a president. Let's let's hope that we don't. But uh, but but who knows what the future holds considering people not learning from the past. Anyway, we're going to continue on with this discussion of asymmetric conflict in the second hour, and I'm going to uh, reserve a lot of my questions and things because I want Larry to really break it down for you. Obviously, I've asked a few interesting questions in the first hour, but stick around. Larry Hancock is my guest on The Ocelli Effect. We'll be right back. Wall Street Gold. Silver, the stock market. Wall Street Window. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. Wall Street Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. Wall Street Window. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations that are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations that are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. 
like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before, that'll open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Why? The Vietnam War. By author Mike Swanson. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're listening to The Ocelli Effect at Ocelli.com. Revelation through conversation. Learn from our relatively recent history, my brother. That's where I'm coming from. I say all powerful people. Yeah, I know. The most underrated voice in all media. Chuck Ocelli. Second hour of The Ocelli Effect continues now at Ocelli.com. And you may be somewhere else, sometime else, listening to this show, but if you are, you are getting uh, some very interesting political science fed to you. Uh, and it is regarding the concept of asymmetric conflict. Now, look, as per usual, in the first hour with Larry, uh, this has been the pattern anyway, uh, he, he has to contend with my random, unrehearsed questions. <laughs> and And my commentary regarding what he's talking about but in this hour i really want to sit back listen and learn because we didn't even touch upon the spheres of influence and exactly how this game is played 
See, again, I keep calling it a game because I look at it tactically and maybe this is a reflex that I should not have, but I can't help myself. Uh, it, it, it seems to be the, the lens by which I can view this. And, of course, you can view all of Larry's work, and I do suggest every single thing the man's written. It's one of the few authors that I, I endorse his collected works, right? Larry-Hancock.com is his website. Go there, check out his blog. Uh, if you don't own any of his books, what's wrong with you? Uh, I got to tell you, one of the books that needs to come up during this discussion is Creating Chaos, which does focus on our friend Mr. Putin, who didn't even get a mention until almost the end of the first hour. So, asymmetric warfare. Um, when it comes to somebody playing the long game, I, I, I don't know how you're on this earth today and not mentioning the Russian Federation slash empire that is being built. And uh, what can I say? It's not the Soviet Union, but, you know, <laughs> in the Soviet Union, the empire builds you. Um, anyway, enough jokes, enough of my commentary. Larry, I, again, I, I know I sort of uh, uh, knock most people off balance, but you are the, uh, the calm zen, zen warrior when it comes to political science on my show. No matter what I say, uh, <laughs> you work with it, and I appreciate it. Because uh, I'm, I'm a little less educated than you on these things, I think. Uh, though some things don't require an education to, uh, I don't know, have common sense. But anyway, um, back into this discussion. Where should we take this now? Because I, I still feel as though we, we've discussed some of the nuances. And we've discussed, you know, modern examples of what you can see from a couple of different sides, not just from the uh, the side of those conducting the conflict, but those being impacted by it. Uh, we definitely had to go into Afghanistan, which is a current news headline for sure. Um, but there's a lot of other examples that are contemporary and historical that uh, we could easily touch upon and show people a lot of things about this. But Maybe we should start with, what do you mean by the phrase spheres of influence? I mean, it, it does seem self-evident again on the face of it, but let's talk about what that actually means. What is a sphere of influence? How is this related to asymmetric warfare? And uh, I'll just leave it with you. Where, where do we go from here? Yeah, let me try to make a transition, because this is... This is just something that I see. I won't say that everybody sees it. Actually, I don't see a lot of sign of it being discussed. But as we talked about last time, the the classic view of asymmetric warfare has been a, a defensive situation where a population, a grouping uh, a, who is less powerful, less well-armed, essentially fights back against a force that they consider to be foreign, whether it actually is an occupier, uh, you know, an empire builder like Britain or France or Germany in the age of empires, or whether it's, it's something a little bit softer where it's, it's, a, it's a, a power group in control that doesn't represent the general population. Uh, this see, may be there is a key right there, Larry, that I wanted you to get to, and I'm glad you hit it. Because I'm thinking to myself this whole time, what about Castro's revolution? Here we have asymmetric warfare, right, which was utilized against the Batista regime, 
Batista was the government and clearly uh, was ethnically connected to Cuba, right? So you, you have the establishment being fought by the insurgency of the revolution. It's not always about a foreign invader. So I'm glad you brought up this part. So please continue. It's it's about someone that at least a fairly large segment of the population would consider not representing their best interest. In other words, this is a he's he or they are not us. They don't have our best interest at heart. Uh, they're not acting for us. They're acting for you know themselves, and quite frankly, they're acting as representatives of a foreign power, if you will, whether that be a foreign religious power, a foreign, uh, in Afghanistan, quite frankly, a lot of the Taliban think of them, the government of Kabul, being non-Muslim, and they're foreign. They don't represent them. Uh, in Cuba, Batista was seen as being an economic client of the U.S., Yankees. This is Yankee domination, and quite frankly, in that period of time, that was the same, and it's the same still across large parts of Latin America. These are economic foreigners. Our our government really is is in league with the Yankees. They're just here for our natural resources. They don't care about us, and our government doesn't care about us either. So. Even though, yes, these are Cubans, Batista is Cuban, he's not really us. He's them. It's always us versus them. Uh, and that was true across mm -hmm. much of Central and Latin America as a response to uh, American economic control. I, I've read some really good yeah. books of the period as to how that happened. But, yeah. Well, in Jack, some cases, not, yeah, this doesn't is... doesn't have to be a foreigner nationally. It can be a local who's not us. <laughs> who, who is somehow, you know, under corporate uh, subversion because they're representing, you know, United Fruit instead of the people. Uh, this kind of thing. Now, what's very eerie here is that among a significant contingent in the U.S. today, there's exactly the sentiment you just described in Cuba pre-revolution the government is not ours it is a circumstance by which there is clearly foreign influence they are not us we're dissatisfied with them not representing us now rightfully or wrongly and I'm not saying I'm, I'm not trying to put a moral judgment on either side of that because uh, on some level I agree but and and by the way don't disagree with the Cuban Revolution given the behaviors of the Batista regime, okay? Um, so I, I know that's going to be picked apart by some people. I don't care. Uh, I, I'm just saying, I understand where that sentimentality comes from, but it's funny that that is uh, exactly what I see rising in the U.S. today. Uh, you know, again, whether correctly or incorrectly, uh, you know, bolstered by factoids of your choice, the reality is there is a significant contingent in this country that is joining in that sentimentality one way or another. So I just want to note that as you continue forward, and you're right, that this is exactly where we need to go. Um, you know, just taking a look at asymmetric conditions, uh, the, the, these are born out of necessity 
And uh, I think you adequately described that in the first hour, but please continue. And again, I will really restrict myself, but I, I think these are key points that needed to be added in here. Thank you. Yeah, so that, so I, I think that characterizes asymmetric conflict. And it's always the, the context, the characterization is we need to defend ourselves from them. They are in power. They have the military. They have the weapons. What tools are we going to use? And then it's a matter of where there's some compromise occurs, some power sharing occurs, or whether it gradually moves from, you know, demonstrations and protests and strikes into something more violent, which is, is the way it happened in Cuba against Batista and to some extent is starting to happen against the current Cuban regime. That's just the cycle. It, it, no surprise, very predictable. But let's move beyond this because the way we're trying to, to describe it is this represents an asymmetric conflict between, let's just call it, us and them. However, that's whatever the composition is. And we're going to defend ourselves from them. But what I'd like to do is spin it to the other direction because there is a completely different half of the spectrum where asymmetry it does not exist in terms of power and weapons and capabilities, but in which asymmetric warfare still occurs. And this brings us into something much more contemporary, and I'd like to talk about spheres of influence as they relate to powers that do have conventional weaponry uh, and that do have significant militaries and do it's it's not an asymmetric military relationship at all yet the sphere of influence is being defended or actually expanded not using conventional weapons and conventional confrontations and th this is not getting discussed at all, as far as I can tell. And in contemporary times, this really takes us to three main players, uh, uh, at least on a global scale, and that is Iran in the, in the Gulf, uh, in China in the South China Sea, and the Russian Federation in Eastern Europe, in the area, areas that used to be part of the Soviet Empire. It would be it really wasn't the Soviet Union. <laughs> they were, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm sorry, Mr. Putin. They were united by the Red Army. That's what they were united by. Um, mm -hmm. It was, it wasn't that. Um, and it, those, in those areas, we're seeing something peculiar because we're seeing groups of people that want to exert economic power, uh, beyond their legal, physical borders. They, they essentially want to have political control, uh, a certain amount of military control over airspace and ocean in areas that are beyond their legal national borders. Now, you can make the argument there have always been economic spheres of influence. Sure, that's true. That's trade. But in these three instances... All of these folks want to extend their power. They all have 
pretty significant militaries. Even Iran has really very significant military for the region. But they actually don't want to go to full-scale war uh, because in the case of Russia or China, that could go bad in many, many ways. Uh, it could get even worse for Iran. So what they are doing is they're turning to asymmetric tactics, not covering their real conventional military power, but using it in very selective, asymmetric ways. I mean, okay. China is is sailing its um, its maritime coast guard vessels covertly across the South China Sea and harassing the Vietnamese and the Philippines. Um, yeah, they're building island chains and putting weapons on them. And that's conventional, but they're using actually much more aggressively these, essentially, if you want to call them guerrilla forces, uh, just as Putin used uh, a non-uniformed guerrilla forces advisors in the Ukraine and the Crimea, and just as Iran is using um, its its surrogates, uh, its Yemeni forces uh -huh. and its own forces in, in Syria and its own revolutionary guard very covertly across the region, not in direct conflict with its opponents. Well, I mean, there, yeah, there are I, no missile exchanges right. from Iran to Saudi Arabia or to Israel. No, despite... Uh, but there certainly are missile exchanges from their surrogates see, now, to I, Saudi Arabia. And I question that alleged missile strike, by the way, um, <clears throat> that, you know, made headlines, what was it, last year or the year before, uh, regarding, you know, this attack from an Iranian surrogate, right? Um, and I wonder, it, it, this is the question I have for you. It, is this why... It is sound tactically for the Iranians to appear to have a less than coherent military structure so that they appear to be less threatening because in reality it's broken down into these different militias right as I understand it maybe I misunderstand it but you you have several sub sub forces here which appear to have some level of autonomy. They're not entirely under a centralized control like our military is, where you have absolute cooperation. And then another layer of this is, and, and I don't know if this is always accurately reported as to who is actually a surrogate of Iran's or not, but because of this very difficult-to-follow, uh, let's call it, for lack of a better term, a loose structure, in its military forces collectively, is this not part of a, a, a greater strategy to not appear as though you have a coherent and cohesive force ready to respond to these uh, much larger threats, namely uh, the Russians and the Chinese and the U.S.? Um, is this not part of the strategy in, in your estimation I'm curious it's absolutely part of the strategy and all three of those entities who are trying to include and extend their sphere of influence are actually using different tactics with the same with the same strategy the the Isra Iranian certainly it's it's militias and its guard units 
are not nearly as chaotic as they want you to appear. They want it to appear that way for deniability. Yeah, see, uh, that, that's that's what my just like yeah, that's the, what that's what my belief is about it is that it is uh, more for appearances' sake, uh, yeah. for deniability. So that look, if if something occurs, and they're caught out doing something covertly, uh, there is a level of deniability and and a lack of justification for retaliating against a totality of a singular force, right? So you could say, look, this militia did this, and uh, they kind of did that on their own. I mean, you know, layman's terms here, right? They kind of did that on their own, and we didn't we didn't authorize that or order it. It's just that they sort of had a, have a, had a mind of their own. So if something occurs where there is a threat to Israel or to Saudi Arabia or one of these other client states, then... Again, deniability is on the table. Look, the Iranian government proper didn't command that. Or our legitimate force didn't necessarily do that. This is an associated militia, but that's more for appearances. I I think in a practical sense, that is untrue, right? Absolutely. Totally true for Iran. It's totally true for China with their quote-unquote little blue men. So if there's a a conflict in the Philippine Sea or uh, 10 Vietnamese fishing boats are sunk, they can simply say, oh, well, we always fish in those waters. Those are waters that are open to us, and they came out and they harassed our, you know, our commercial fishermen, and they just defended themselves. I, I, oh, yeah, uh, are those boats that they're in totally different and are they constructed so that they can ram and sink other vessels and are they armed well we don't want to talk about that uh but absolutely they're quote-unquote little blue men are a form of deniability just as putin's little green men in crimea were a form of what you want to do and and what they are doing now we've moved we've moved into the the lowest stage of conventional warfare where you don't want you don't want it to look serious enough so you go head to head with other conventional forces you you want to keep in a scale, low enough scale where you can add chaos to the situation you can add confusion uh, without causing a conventional conflict uh now, I don't know that at some point in time the Chinese are going to care if they do. I, I don't, I'm not sure the Russians do, but it's the same for all three. The strategy is the same for all three. They are, they are taking asymmetric measures. They're, they're, send, they're sending deniable forces that are militarized to a certain extent and extending their reach, essentially, uh, and exposing it, what they really want to do is they want to expose a weakness it's a testing it's a probing um and it it has nothing to do with what we talked about in the last hour where i'm defending my territory no in these cases they want to demonstrate a weakness indicating that that territory is now available to them and they could legitimately claim it um you know I, I just so a little the, reminiscent yeah. there, Chuck. You remember when we talked about creating chaos, and I said 
one of the one of the most beautiful applications of political warfare that I ever saw was when one of the uh, a Russian empress had a a sign posted signs posted across a swath of territory that Russia didn't really own and across thousands of miles saying. Uh, essentially, translation is congratulations. You're now part of the Russian Empire, and like it worked. Everybody went, "Oh, we're part of the Russian Empire." Was the cheapest <laughs> <laughs> expansion of her sphere of influence, and to some extent, it, it's the Chinese want you to take it for granted that the South China Sea is theirs. Gradually, take it for granted that anyone else is intruding. And that that extends off the Philippines and off Vietnam, just as as Putin wants to take it for granted that much of Eastern Europe is by culture, nature, language, ethnic Russians, and should be part of the Russian sphere of influence. That they want this is the first stage using just enough force to prove that this. These areas are really not solidly part of anybody else, and we have as much claim to it and maybe more claim to them than anybody else. Well, and this was uh, clearly done in public in Crimea, where these are ethno-Russians, and there is no reason for them not to be part of us. And they annexed Crimea. I mean, right or wrong, am I, am I seeing that about the same way here? Absolutely, and and they again a hilarious. We we just I just bashed President Bush uh, for for saying that you know we'd never do regime building in Afghanistan. Well, after the way Putin conducted it in Crimea over over no more than two years, I think it's probably no more than fourteen months. His first public statement was. Uh, we had there were no Russian forces involved in annexing Crimea. That was totally a popular movement inside Crimea. Crimea, nothing to do with it. Within four months, it was oh yeah, those were Russian special forces, and yeah okay, and there were volunteers with them, and yeah okay, but don't anybody worry because we're not really interested in political control. We're never going to do that. And within another six months, it was. Oh well, we're going to have a referendum, and we just absolutely know that they're going to vote to join the Russian Federation. And son of a gun, they did. Hmm. So I would say it's an indication of where Putin. <laughs> one of the great things about Putin is ultimately he will admit to what he's doing, whereas in the U.S. we just kind of stumble through it. Putin will admit to it because he had a plan in the first place. Right. We didn't. So you know. He's got a better dialogue worked out. Right, exactly. So it, it makes more sense publicly and privately as the narrative shifts. And it, it, it's just self-evident. But again, this is about expanding the spheres of influence, which I guess could be seen as a goal and also part of the condition of asymmetric warfare simultaneously. Because um, without expanding your sphere of influence... Well, asymmetric warfare just becomes what a a, a nuisance uh, to the the uh, the intended target. So you know you you can be a nuisance, and that indeed may be useful in a tactical sense. But 
but but again, it, it it doesn't speak to achievable objectives, which, as you said, a guy like Putin has a list of those, and it's pretty clear. Uh, in the U.S., this seems to shift all the time because, uh, you know, allegedly because there's different people in power. But the the the, the truth is, I think that um, different opportunists, you know, prioritize different opportunities here, and that's why it shifts. But anyway, we we could view that economically, we could view that socially, we could view that in a lot of different ways. But back to this discussion. I'm sorry, I don't mean to sidetrack you at all. I want to continue to give you the time to get through this. Go ahead. Well, I, I think, and this this brings up a, a good point. There, there's so offensive asynchronous warfare is much different than what we talked about in the first hour uh, because it represents. There's no reason to do it without a plan and a strategy. Uh, asymmetrical warfare, guerrilla warfare, revolutions, those are always in response to a situation, an us-versus-them situation, and and they're very, you know, they are chaotic in a different sense, and they move from one stage to the other, and there's probably no plan. You know, it's just... Someone is taking control of us, and we don't like it. What are we going to do about it? And it progresses through stages, and maybe it becomes violent, and maybe it doesn't over some period of time. What we're talking about here with with aggressive asynchronous warfare from nation states that do have military power, you know, that they're not... It's not an issue that they don't have the power, that Russia or China don't have, that this afternoon Russia could not occupy the South China Sea and deny us access, and that's it. They could do that if they wanted to. Uh, And quite frankly, now that they're tripling their strategic missile force, if they do that next year, you know, what are you going to do? So... These are this sphere of influence stuff is between groups that do have major military power and are deciding not to use it in a real conventional fashion. They're not there's not any we're going to under overrun Poland next week or you know Hitler decides to occupy Russia in four months or whatever. There, there's no we're those were expanding spheres of influence, conventionally a decision. This is a very different approach. This is a kind of a wear them down, desensitize them. It's as much psychological as anything else. It, it's In this sense, it's a conditioning exercise, as I was trying to get to, just to, first of all, mm-hmm. under, let people understand that, you know, this is not an area that's, Control by the end. They're, they're not going to deny us access. We have access. Mm-hmm. Not only do we have access, we have claims. We can enforce those claims. We can we can do things that show that it's not somebody else's. We have claims to it, but there's got to be a plan. If, if you don't take that thing further, it was useless. If well, yeah. If and, yeah. Putin doesn't yeah. claim. Crimea, it was a waste of time. If he doesn't essentially take over Belarus, 
it was a waste of time. No, this is they, fair, but also when when you're talking about the larger power finding asymmetrical means to achieve an objective, uh, the U.S. is not immune from this and does occasionally appear to have longer-term strategies. Uh, and, and what I will point to here is the creeping expansion of NATO and exactly how that was positioned and how that became, you know, th- this is just the way of things, despite the fact that there were, you know, <laughs> agreements seemingly that this wasn't going to happen. You, you you have the virtual encirclement of the Russian Federation. Um over time, and it was a longer-term strategy, and NATO is a good example of the use of this, right? I mean, where, you know, it just sort of creeps in and isn't done by conventional military force, but but here you have a, a different map now, you know? Just over the course of a couple of decades, boom, it looks very, very different, doesn't it? Well, I might have to disagree I am not sure that there really was a plan there. Really? I, I okay. can't swear that there wasn't, but... It looks uh, like it was planned, i got to tell you, Larry, in well, hindsight. And, and I agree, but let's, let's step back and look at it this way. Sure. Okay. Um, the, the influence with those countries, the, none of those countries were offered NATO, an admission to a NATO. I mean, Ukraine still hasn't been. What, what happened first is it looks to me like the European Union, and let's, the European Union had a lot of money. It was, had a lot of hubris after the EU was formed. And at at that point in time, it was very solid and it was expanding economically, internally, and quite frankly, let's be honest, if you just get back to sheer economics, all of its, its nation states were fairly well developed, but these were totally fresh markets in Eastern Europe. And they were fresh markets that Europe that Russia was not able to serve because Russia crashed economically, production wise, you know, they didn't have the resources. So from my my way of looking at it, it looks to me like what you really saw is basically capitalism at work. Basically, EU and EU member nations reaching out and offering all of these trade deals. And it's not that Russia didn't do the same thing. And I write about this in Creating Chaos. Russia tried to offer the same trade packs. But the point is, Europe had a lot more to offer, just in terms of production, resources, and they wanted to deal. They were they were in a position to cut better deals. NATO kind of followed in behind because, quite frankly, none of these countries trusted Russia. Russia had been their occupier. I, I you can't name well. I could maybe name one one of those former so- Soviet republics to the west that had really been in love with Russia and trusted Russia. They had been governed. All of their political control, just like in the Ukraine, they went to Moscow, they got blessed, and they went back, and amazingly enough, they got elected or they were in power. So I, I would say part of it is just basically the human condition is we got rid of these other guys. Um, these guys look like they got some pretty sweet deals. 
Um, and that's what happened. I, it, it's like filling a vacuum. Now, maybe there was a plan, but I see it more as filling a vacuum than I do the result of any... One of the reasons I think I see it that way, Chuck, is Russia collapsed so quickly. The Soviet Union collapsed so quickly and went into such a dive that I, I see no signs that NATO would have had a strategic plan setting around prepared for that. Like, wait a, wait a minute. Our whole plan against Russia is that we're, you know, they're our massive adversary, and now it's next year, and they're they're not even there. All they're every. I don't know that they even had a contingency plan for that, but that's just me. Yeah, see, I I, I I'm, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you because I see that there were economic. <laughs> assets deployed to you know look russia was going to go uh, the the soviet union excuse me was going to go off a cliff right but um <clears throat> there were plenty of economic assets i feel that were deployed intentionally to kick them over the edge and <clears throat> that's why you saw that quick you know and and serious vacuum formed and i think it was intentionally formed um and, and there there are others that you know share this view uh, who you know uh, use the, uh, the the economic economic hitman kind of uh, template and point to a few examples of it uh, where there were individuals that you know were sent in to really uh, undermine the circumstance fast and I I think that might have been a purposeful design now again I could be wrong uh, it, it's hard to know unless you're in the know right. Um, but you could be right as well. I look. I, I have an open mind about it. It just appears to me as though it was intentionally orchestrated to create that circumstance where, oh, by the way, we just so happen to have this sitting right here, which will do you just fine. And those guys, <laughs> look at them. They they have definitely gone off the cliff. You know, wait for Wiley Coyote to actually hit the bottom because. It's not going to be pretty, and you're going to want to be as far away from it as possible. But we got something for you to do in the meantime. And strategically, NATO becomes part of that package, right? So it, it, it makes it easier. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me and my prejudices about it, because uh, I, I, I always see nefarious uh, uh, plots in these sorts of things. But you could be right. It's just a, uh, it's just a, a happy circumstance for somebody who might have had that as a vision and there were indeed think tanks that uh, uh certainly envisioned this and wanted this done now, i don't know if the you know the u.s government proper or nato alliances were looking at those uh models but i do know that those things existed so uh, the possibilities are open fair enough oh i, I would be open to ch i guess i would even go for a compromise I have I, I give a huge amount of credit to um, capitalist initiative. I have no doubt that there were German firms and French firms and British firms that had contingency plans. I just I, so mm -hmm. I, I absolutely and okay. and did they dispatch hitman and all? There's every sign that they did, and they right. were ready on the mark, as you say. I would just I would. Uh, I guess my only I, – I, I see corporate entities much more um, uh, predatory 
and and organized oh, and structured than I do governments. No, no, no argument from me there. Uh, corporate entities will at all times be, be better organized, better funded, and in fact, often are the powers behind the government entities <laughs> in my mind. But again, these are my prejudices, and and I don't want to interfere with what you're talking about because we got about another fifteen minutes. And I'd like to come to a concise sort of conclusion about this topic, although it is difficult, I want to say, because there are a great many elements here, Uh, some quite easily observable and some not so much, right? I mean, just trying to break down, I mean, really, we could have spent the last two hours just talking about the conflict, right, the asymmetric conflict with Iran alone, that wouldn't be an issue at all. I mean, just going through the history, what's happening right now, exactly what their defensive and offensive actions have been uh, versus what they've been represented as, right? Because remember, propaganda is always a game too and uh, never seems to stop, kind of like the casinos in most of the good casino towns. I mean, they, they don't close and neither does that game. So... Uh, there, there, there's a lot to be said there, but I want to wrap up this particular uh, area. And uh, again, I think it's been a, a, a great privilege once again to have a uh, an addendum <clears throat> to the Larry Hancock collection, which this is, uh, giving you a real, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a real lecture actually on <laughs> on on one of the very uh, narrow areas of. The political reality and the tactical reality and the uh, reality of conflict, I think, uh, as it is a lot more complicated than, you know, your talking heads want to write to you and your political activists want to want to explain to you. There, there is a lot more nuance, as per usual, built in here and context is necessary. So discussing asymmetric warfare with you is a. Uh, a great privilege, and again, but in case I don't remember before we're done, Larry-Hancock.com is your website. Um, this is again some of the mortar that holds together the wall, the bricks, if you will, that built uh, all that stuff that you could put on your bookshelf from Larry Hancock, and uh, I endorse and recommend it all. Larry-Hancock.com. Anyway, Larry. So how is it that we could sort of you know bring this to a summation? Well, I think the most useful thing is, and in and, 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 and looking at the world as a whole, and I, I wish the decision makers would look at it this way, is, is to just accept the fact that conflict is a normal state of affairs. You know, peace, uh, unfortunately, is not. Conflict is always there, and you've got to characterize it correctly. You gotta, you've got to put it on the spectrum that we were talking about. There's always going to be conflict, so you have to have to appreciate this this us versus them situation and realize as as a global power, uh, as the US does, and this is looking at it from the US perspective of of characterize it correctly. You know, what are you what are you getting in your yourself into in a particular region, in a particular geography? What's what's the true nature of the conflict. And if you describe the conflict correctly, I think you're more likely to deal with it. And and if you understand in Afghanistan or Vietnam or 
many places across. If you can accept it's an us versus them, and you're the them, then you'll act differently. We tend to think that, you know, democracy is wonderful, uh, you know, freedom of religion is wonderful, uh, human rights are wonderful, equality, that's us. But we have to understand there are many places where that's not them, and they don't like us because of that. So we just need to escape that cultural naivety and realize that in many instances we are them and act accordingly and accept that they're not automatically going to take what we have to offer, which was <laughs> – we, we have an illustration. The, the Soviet Union – viewed communism as great, and of course the Afghans are going to love it, didn't work. We viewed democracy as great, of course the Afghans are going to love it, didn't work. So that's the first thing, is to characterize correctly the situation that you're you're inserting yourself into and, and realize, take, realize the cultural reality, the conflict reality. I think the second part is to accept the fact that in contemporary affairs, there is this sphere, sphere of influence thing going on. It's very real. There are parties that want to claim spheres of influence and are going to be continue rocking the boat. They, they don't want, uh, they want chaos. They truly do. They, they want to do whether, whatever, whether it's low level military activity, covert military activity, cyber warfare, political warfare. They want everything going on that they can to destabilize the situation to give them the right to claim control. And you just have to accept, again, that's the nature of the beast. It's it's aggressive, even if it is, you know, asymmetric. And, and we right. just, we, I, we, I'm afraid, like to see the world in our own image and it's not. And I guess that's where I'd, I'd like to end with is we've got to get out of seeing the world in our image and think we can remake it in our image. I would love to do that mm. uh, if I had a switch. OK, uh, knowing that other people would not want me to turn that switch. So I guess, Chuck, that's it. I think it's stepping back is conflict is real. Asymmetric conflict is real. It has two faces, mm. defensive and offensive and we really need case by case to characterize it correctly or we lose. Yeah, see, I, I, I find that there are three faces here. And again, could just be me and by all means, shut me down. Tell me I'm silly, okay? But it is not just the reality of it we must understand. We must also understand how it is useful regardless of the level of success or failure. Because... This idea that, look, there are places where you're unwanted and, uh, you know, the, the old argument about not being the policeman of the world and all that, all true. And there are places where, I hate to uh, quote the strangeness of one of our former presidents, but they may indeed hate us for our freedoms. Um, that, that is possible. But we should always be vigilant to, to uh, you know, to to being aware of when this has been used as hyperbole also. Because, again, did, did, did the Afghan people 
really have a problem with the United States before we got there? Is that really something that was present there? Is that, or, or, or was that merely a useful piece of propaganda to justify the use of and spending of treasures and blood. And isn't that always the case where you must be conscious at all times that regardless of the level of legitimacy in these claims regarding this, we, we, we can't simply accept on face value from the powers that be or their cohorts in the propaganda industry whether it be the mainstream corporate media or otherwise. Got to remember that um, they're going to write narratives for their purposes and they may not always be the realistic lens that you and i have been trying to go through here tonight um and, and you got to remember that everything is at all times subject to manipulation given the agenda of the manipulator okay now maybe you think i'm crazy because i say that at the end of all this larry but i think it's important to always remember keep questioning this stuff keep looking at the logic of it because a misconception is fully useful when expanding your sphere of influence or anybody's and uh it can be weaponized so i think we need to uh, at all times be vigilant about the level of truth in the information that is being disseminated do, do, do you think i'm nuts oh i absolutely check and and the no you're not nuts at all you in fact, I guess that's one point, and you said it, I, I should have said it, is you have to look past the, the narrative because the narrative is always going to encourage you to do maybe politically what someone wants to do or economic. You've got to get past that to the reality on the ground. And actually, I think we reporting in the past, there were periods of time when we had good on-the-ground reporting, that's gotten less and less as much of our mainstream media has focused so much on domestic politics. A constant complaint of mine is, you know, we're not getting good on the ground reporting. We get a little bit of it, but you have to really look to find it. So, yeah, I, I'm very much in agreement. You have to get past the narrative to what's real on the ground. And that's always the big challenge because – Obviously, if someone wants you to become involved, <laughs> they don't want to hear the things that we've been talking about for the last two hours. Yeah, that, that's they don't want to hear that reality. They they so no, I don't I don't disagree with that at all. I'm I'm very clinical, and and I think what discourages me is so often I, I'll say this because I've spent so much time looking at intelligence reports. I will say a great many, if you went to the reports that are written by the true intelligence professionals, the real people that get the field information and analyze it, they will tell you the truth. It's just that the narrative overwhelms the truth. I, I've seen so many instances where the intelligence community would do a correct assessment and you never hear about it because that's not what the politics wanted to hear. Uh, it goes, we talked about Cuba all the way, all the way up to the Bay of Pigs. For three years, the U.S. intelligence community was saying, even the CIA's own intelligence group was saying, this is not going to work, you can't do this, and those estimates of the situation were just thrown away because they weren't part of what the political narrative wanted. 
So there are people that see the reality, but I think they get ignored because the narrative you're talking about, that's not the narrative. Where do we last see it? Neocon in Iraq and Afghanistan? That's not the that's not the narrative they wanted because of a particular ideology. I'd really like to get past ideology. No, and again, sometimes it's not even the ideology. I mean, it's not because you have a mustache twirling villain at the head of the CIA. It it's simply the momentum in the system. I mean, the the second we went into Afghanistan, in truth, Iraq was coming. I mean, that was just a guarantee. There, were, there was going to be political justification. There was going to be, you know, the, the, the charade of yellow cake uranium. And all this nonsense was going to happen one way or another. It, it, it was just a question of exactly how it was going to be justified. And that was that. It, it was literally the momentum of the system based on the individuals in it. Um, I, I don't think we could have escaped that. That, that that was just the way it was, no matter what the assessment would have been, no matter what the military, uh, you know, uh, uh, thinking, the thinking military would have said about it strategically, it was going to be irrelevant. This was going to happen. And oh, sometimes you're so that right. occurs, and what's too. so frightening about that is now we know that for a fact. That's mm-hmm. not speculation. We now have the oral histories. We have the transcripts right. of saying that in the week after 9-11, there were multiple, actually the 9-11 report picked this up. There were multiple attempts by the Secretary of State and various players in the administration that approached the intelligence community and said, look, this is the report I want. This is, I want a report that says Iraq is behind this. Right. And the intelligence community pushed back. Uh, not forever, but okay. But absolutely, you're 100%, and we know that. That's not even... A matter for discussion anymore. Right. I mean, initially, what they said was, we, we don't have the intelligence you're looking for, pretty much. And yep. the the response, look, and, and I am very much uh, oversimplifying this, but the response essentially was, yeah, go find it. <laughs> yep. And <laughs> absolutely. Th- and and that's really what it comes down to. And that used to be speculation again among you know people that might have had anti-war sentiments like myself. Um, but quite frankly, that's the way it looked from the outside, and it turns out that's effectively what happened. Um, I, I again, you don't got to be Nostradamus to see where some things are going. Anyhow, <laughs> just just saying, Larry. Again, uh, any final thoughts here uh, as we uh, close out this particular episode? Now, I just I hope that we broaden the conversation. As I said, I was I was surprised with with what we know now that when you brought up this topic and when I did, you know, Google searches on it and even looked at some articles and so on and so forth, that that asymmetric warfare is still being looked at as a a matter of just tactical exchange in a very limited form where this, we need a much better picture of this to understand what's going on to keep ourselves from making mistakes it's not there so i hope this has done that for at least a few people you know same here and as per usual every time i get together with larry hancock it's extremely educational and i hope that you the listener have picked up on some of it because it is rare this kind of discussion is not out there regarding this at all seems like to me 
I mean, maybe in some circles, there might be some political science group somewhere in some classroom. I don't know. But quite honestly, what is publicly accessible, not this. So, Larry, I thank you again. Go to Larry-Hancock.com or Larry-Hancock.com, however it is you want to say it. doesn't matter. Search him out. I will give you the links to Larry's blog, his books, and all that in the show notes. And uh, even though we've concluded the entire series uh, on the collected works of Larry Hancock, <clears throat> Larry's welcome to come on here if he wants to talk about cats. I don't care. Uh, anytime, Larry, and uh, I thank you again, sir. It's been a pleasure, Chuck. We will return tomorrow night, and hopefully Larry will return to the show sometime soon. In the meantime, I am merely Ocelli. All of you are indeed the effect.